In 1900, an American writer named Frank L. Baum wrote a children's storybook that ended up kind of impacting our culture in a very big way. The book was called The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. And many of you are probably familiar with this story. It begins with the main character, Dorothy, um, getting caught in this torrential Midwestern storm. And her house gets ripped up off the ground, and uh, when it lands, she finds herself in this strange land inhabited by these strange, tiny people. And she meets this witch, who happens to be a good witch. Uh, I always wondered why she called herself that, because I always just thought witches were just these evil people. But she's a good witch. And um, when um, she lands, she meets the good witch of the north. And uh, she tells her that she is in the land of the munchkins. And that they are grateful to Dorothy, because her, her house just landed on the evil witch of the east. And... They're happy because they're no longer under her rule. In the midst of the celebration of the munchkins, Dorothy says all she really wants is to be able to go home and return to Kansas. And uh, the good witch tells Dorothy she should go to the Emerald City because there she will find the wizard named Oz and that he might be able to help her get home. As she leaves uh, to, to go on her journey, the um, which of the North told Dorothy to go on. She gives her these silver shoes and uh, basically says, here's the yellow brick road and that will take you to where you need to go. And along the journey, she meets these three characters named the Scarecrow, who had no brain, the Lion, who had no courage, and then the Tin Man, who had no heart. The Tin Man in particular is interesting. He, she first meets him and comes across this, what she thought was a lifeless statue along the side of the road. As, as she walks by, she hears him groan. She leans in and, and hears him asking if, if she could oil his joints so that he could move. She thought that was a very odd thing to hear from a statue. But she went and grabbed some oil and uh, did as, as he had asked. She put the oil on his joints and began to squeak. And before you know it, he was able to move his joints. He said to her, I might have stood here for forever if you hadn't come along. So you have certainly saved my life. How did you even come here? What brings you along this way? Dorothy tells him that they are on the way to meet the wizard in the Emerald City. Why do you wish to see Oz? He asked. I want him to send me back to Kansas. And the scarecrow here wants him to put a few brains in his head, she replied. The tin man appeared to deeply think about this, and he said, do you suppose Oz could give me a heart as well? Why, I guess so, she said. It would be as easy to give the scarecrow a brain, so I don't see why not. True, the tin man returned. So if you will allow me to join you on your journey, I will also go to the Emerald City and ask Oz to help me. And off they went, singing along the yellow brick road, if you know the movie. And so after a difficult, what's that, Ed? Oh, I'm not going to sing. <laughs> I'm taking a break today. And so after a difficult journey, they finally arrived to Oz, and he gave them what they were seeking. Uh, as the story ends, we see Dorothy, the scarecrow, and the tin man, and the lion 
have one last encounter with the Good Witch of the North. They thanked her for her kindness, and Dorothy said, you are certainly as good as you are beautiful, but you have not yet told me how to get back to Kansas. The witch said, your silver shoes will carry you home. If you had known their power all along, you could have returned home the moment that you got here. But the scarecrow said, but I wouldn't have received my wonderful brains, and I might have passed my whole life in the farmer's cornfield. And I wouldn't have received my lovely heart, said the tin man. And then the, the lion said, I would have lived my whole life as a coward, and no beast in the forest would have given a good word to me. This is all true, said Dorothy, and I'm glad I was of use of these good friends, but now that each of them has received what they've desired and each is happy in having a kingdom to rule besides, I think I would like to go back to Kansas now. And so she returns home to Kansas. The story is probably a bit of a sentiment, it probably brings a little bit of sentimental memories for some of you, just of childhood and whatnot. And for others of you, you're like cringing because it was just such a weird experience watching the movie or just the story is just kind of strange. But, and as I was preparing for the message today, I saw quite a few parallels between um, the character of the Tin Man and what I want to talk about today. We see the Tin Man with this yearning for something to happen. To not be this metal, heartless being that needs oiling in order to simply move. Uh, he has this desire to feel, to love, and to extend kindness and compassion. For us as Christians, it's this idea of longing for breakthrough and walking into the reality that God has for us and embracing who he has called us to be. Today we're going to spend some time reading from the book of Ezekiel. As a church, we've been reading through the Bible following a two-year uh, reading plan called Mission 119. Um, there's some information in the bulletin about that if you'd like to jump in and read along with us. And each week, we take a passage from that week's reading for the text, for the message uh, in that sermon. Last week, Pastor Nathan preached from Ezekiel chapter 18 about how God gives everyone the chance um, to be a new creation through Christ and that despite our past, we can move forward, forward into an unknown but hopeful future. About a month ago, a month ago when um, Nathan asked if I'd be interested in preaching today, without really thinking about it, I, I, I just said, sure, that sounds great. Uh, and then when I saw the reading for this week was from Ezekiel, I started to get a little nervous. I really didn't know much about the book of Ezekiel or um, other than just reading through it on my times um, reading through the Bible. And the book honestly left me uh, kind of scratching my head. Have you ever had that moment when you walk into a uh, conversation that a group of friends or people are having and you just kind of sit there and you feel like you're really out of place because you have no idea what they're talking about or how to even contribute to what is being said, whether it's about, you know, sports, politics, whatever the, the topic might be. Um, 
and you think to yourself, I seriously have nothing to contribute to this conversation, so I'll just nod my head a couple of times and look like I'm interested and try to find the easiest, most awkward, unawkward way to just kind of pull out and, uh, and move on with your day. <laughs> That's kind of what reading Ezekiel is like. It's just like you, you read through it and you're kind of feeling like, I'm not sure, I feel like I missed something here. Next to Revelation, it's probably the hardest book in the Bible to understand. It's filled with imagery uh, and language that seem very hard to just grasp in, um, in our life today. It can also portray God and humanity, humanity's connection to him in ways that seem completely contrary to how we might see him portrayed and see it portrayed in the rest of scripture and when you read the words from the prophet ezekiel it begs the question did i did i miss something here when i was in seminary um i learned these two words that they're they're fairly common but i had never heard of them before uh exegesis and hermeneutics uh for those of you who studied you know bible study methods you've heard those before and they basically mean uh studying the Bible from the standpoint of what did the passage mean in the language and culture and historical context of the person who wrote the words. And taking it further, it asks, how would the people who these words were written for have understood them? When we approach Scripture this way, it's much easier to figure out the intended meaning of a given passage and understand what God is actually trying to communicate here. Ezekiel is one of the, those books where understanding context and background is essential in, in trying to make sense of all this, this mess. And the book of Ezekiel embodies something that is even difficult for many Christians to bring together in their faith. And that's the, the idea that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are actually the same being. In the Old Testament, we see the ugliness of humanity and how much it misses the mark from God's ideal. And in the New Testament, we see something that kind of looks a little bit different. People often say things like, I'm not sure I believe this Old Testament God. He seems mean and gruesome, and I'm not sure I really like this idea of God being jealous. It's just, it just sounds like a I like a high schooler in an insecure relationship. And it's true. I've heard people say that and describe God when he says he's jealous. The idea of God being jealous makes him out to be emotionally unstable and maybe even immature if people want to be honest with what they think about it. And what people instead say is, I like the New Testament God. I mean, Jesus is good. I dig him. He is all about the love and helping the least of these and just sticking it to the, the legalistic, hypocritical leaders. That's what Jesus is about. And this is a compare and contrast people actually make. And maybe even some of you in here today, like the Old Testament and New Testament God are just two different beings. Or maybe it's the same being, but God somehow grew up a little bit between the Old Testament and New Testament. In reading Ezekiel, we have to be looking at it through the, context, through the correct lens. and uh, That the God of the Old Testament is actually the very same God who died on the cross for our sins. If we don't do that, then Christ's death didn't accomplish anything. It was simply a man who died. 
on a cross. Ezekiel was a prophet and priest to the children of Israel during the Babylonian exile, about 600 BC. This exile occurred as a result of Israel's continuous and belligerent disobedience to God. It was essentially God's judgment upon them. And during the Babylonian exile, there was a feeling of bewilderment and despair because because of the capture of their city, Jerusalem. It brought a sense of, of national brokenness and grief as every family experienced death from hunger and disease or death as a result of the final onslaught of Jerusalem inside and outside of the city. Theologian Christopher Wright says, there was a psychological horror and shock as the people were thrown into disbelief over the fate of Jerusalem and the temple. And then there was the theological bafflement that followed. Where was God in all this? Had he been defeated by the Babylonian gods? Or had he really done this to his own people? Was he now as disgraced in defeat as Israel was? Or was he actually still in control of these events? In either case, was there any future for Israel now? And if not, then what would become of God's wider purpose among the nations? Ezekiel then was called to be, the, to be God's messenger to a shattered and shell-shocked people. What we see in the book of Ezekiel is an exiled people living among a Babylonian nation whose religion was about power and supremacy. It utterly oppressed the Israelites. The prophet's message was to this audience who likely exhibited every conceivable human reaction to that trauma and that, that catastrophic dislocation that they experienced. Many were angry and rejected the faith of Israel altogether. And some accepted that God, that God had caused this exile, but they protested that this punishment was just simply unjust and unfair, that they should not have to suffer for the sins of previous generations. Through the message of Ezekiel, God tells of a coming renewal and restoration. And for the purpose of Israel that he has, he still has that for them. And that's where we find ourselves in, in today's reading. It's from chapter 36, if you'd like to read along, starting in verse 16. It says, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, when the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanliness in my sight. That's, that's the... That's the imagery that God is talking about here, just the uncleanliness of their sin. Uh, and it's like, it's something that might be a little, you know, grotesque for us to think about, but it's the imagery of what God is trying to communicate through Ezekiel about the, uh, the sin that they had been embracing. So I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations, and they are scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever they went among the nations, they profaned my holy name, for it was said of them, These are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. 
I had concern for my holy name, which the people of Israel profaned among the nations where they had gone. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm doing these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will hear, will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am proven holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees, to be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I give, gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanliness. As a people in severe and oppressive captivity, this message would have been received with just open arms. It would have brought a sense of hope that the exile is soon to be over. But it would also have brought this resurgence to the idea that Israel would not be forgotten, but instead once again become a great nation. And this view established the motivation uh, for why the Jews responded to Jesus Christ the way that they did. They believed that God promised they would become a great nation and that the coming Messiah would be a conquering king who would bring Israel to greatness. This is why they were unable to receive Jesus as he was, a person who came in humility and contradicting the core of the Jewish faith. And that he died having never carried the sword into battle. This was not the Messiah that they were expecting. And verse 24 through 27 is key in understanding this. It says, For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from the, from the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove you I will move from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and keep my laws. It wasn't simply prophesying about Israel's deliverance from captivity and eventual return to greatness. Something much bigger was happening here. It was, was pointing to Jesus Christ and what he would ultimately do for us on the cross. I will sprinkle you with water and you will be clean. That's the forgiveness of sins. He cleanses us from all impurities. I will give you a new heart. That's the, the life, the new life that we experience through Jesus Christ and a new spirit, the Holy Spirit living inside of us. It's no longer for us who live, but God's spirit inside of us. Yes, it was Israel's failure to live according to God's commandments that brought them into exile. But the cleansing that Ezekiel is talking about is much, much bigger than forgiving Israel's sin. Man sinned way before God 
gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And the Bible is clear that man's nature is ultimately sin. It's the condition of our heart. It was, this first, it was the first sin in the Garden of Eden that created uh, this separation from man and God. As a result, ever since, it was always God's plan to eliminate that separation. He didn't need to establish a religious code and give us the Ten Commandments in order to show us what sinners we are. It was always evident. And uh, this was the major point the Pharisees missed. Jesus literally had people coming to him saying, look, I've done everything correctly. I've obeyed all the laws, all the commandments, and I'm practically perfect. And Jesus would look at them and say, okay, sure you are. Now go and sell all your possessions and give them to the poor. And then they would realize they weren't perfect. That was the mic drop moment of mic drop moments. That was when we realized Jesus completely obliterated the way we see ourselves and our ability to think that we can honestly live righteously on our own strength. The Sermon on the Mount illustrates this aspect of Jesus' ministry. He said, You have heard it said that you shall not murder but I tell you, even if you think angry thoughts towards your brother or sister, you have sinned. You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you, if you even think or look lustfully upon another person, you have committed that sin. You have heard it said that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, anyone who slaps you on one cheek, turn and let them slap the other one as well. Matthew five forty-three for 48. He continues, he says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that you might be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his sin to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you, lose, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are, you not, even the, are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people. Why are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus showed us that it wasn't ever about the law. It wasn't about a standard of holiness that no one is capable of attaining on our own strength. Our sin isn't a result of our inability to follow the Old Testament law. But the, the Old Testament law shows us that there's literally nothing we can do to live a perfect life. And the sin Jesus died to forgive was not because someone did work on the Sabbath or because someone disobeyed their parents. It was for all sin. Yes, it was for those things, but it covered the sin nature that we are. That we are all sinners and we fall short of the glory of God. The ideal is perfection and to be holy. And it is utterly unattainable without the help of our Heavenly Father. And so what we have in the Old Testament is through the Israelites, God is trying to create a way to establish his presence among them as his chosen people. He said, if you do these things, if you follow these laws, then I will be your God and you'll be my people. But the Israelites were unable to follow what God had said. It was just one thing. Worship me and worship me only. 
And it wasn't even like a one strike or three strikes and you're out sort of thing. God gave them so much grace and mercy. And yet, they continually turned away. They continually turned their back on him. And that they would eventually wind up in the place that God warned that they would if they did not return and repent. So what we see in Ezekiel doesn't contradict the nature and character of God. Instead, it reveals how ugly sin actually is to him. It wasn't simply this forgiveness that we needed. It it was to be completely cleansed and made new that our heart of stone would be replaced by a heart of flesh. So what does it mean then when God says he will give us a heart of flesh and that he will put his spirit in us? Jeremiah chapter 31 talks about this. It's, it's, it's a passage describing the new covenant that God desired to make with Israel. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant, when the people of Israel and the people of Judah, with the people of Israel and the people of Judah, it will be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I, when I took them out of the land, out by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant. Though I, was husband, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after the time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one, say to one another, know the Lord because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sin no more. This is the Holy Spirit that he's talking about. A time is coming when he will put his law in our minds and write it in our hearts. That is what walking in the Spirit is. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. John 15, 26, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. The Holy Spirit helps us to know God. He reveals himself to us through the Holy Spirit and allows us to have a personal relationship with him. And for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sin no more. The new covenant Jeremiah is talking about is pointing us to the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's pointing us to Pentecost. And this is when everything changed. When the Holy Spirit came, it was no longer about the law. It became about complete surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ, which goes way beyond the requirements of the law. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, it says, Paul writing to the Galatians says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not to be whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. In our passage from Ezekiel, 
The heart of stone represents stubborn self-will. A heart of flesh, on the other hand, is pliable and responsive. When we receive a heart of flesh, the evil inclination is removed and a new nature replaces it. The new nature is the Holy Spirit alive in us. Our life becomes about Galatians 2.20, that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So unlike the tin man from the Wizard of Oz who had no heart, the challenge for us is allowing God to take away our heart of stone and replace it with one that is made of flesh. Having a hard heart or a heart of stone is, is not something that is only unique to people outside of faith in Christ. A hard heart characterizes the struggle that we experience as a result of our life in the Holy Spirit. It is the struggle between our sinful nature and the Holy Spirit's sanctifying work in us. The underlying motivation for a hard heart is pride and resisting. It is because of pride that we are unwilling to yield to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in, in areas of our life or every area of our life if we are not yet a follower of Christ. A hard heart is basically us saying, I am not willing to let the Holy Spirit in. I am unwilling to receive the new life that he wants to give me. When it comes to us as Christians, when we carry hardness and pride and things in our life that we are not willing to let go of and allow the Holy Spirit to transform, when this happens, it essentially creates a roadblock for us, a barrier for how God can work in us. As I was looking at scripture, some things stuck out to me regarding how a hard heart can kind of impede or uh, make it difficult for God's presence to exist in our life and how it can lessen his impact in us. You might have experienced some of these things yourself at different times and hopefully you recognize what was going on before it, it got too late. Um, but the point here is for us to be aware of how this is a real issue. And it's not just this theoretical thing uh, for us to think about for a minute and then just kind of move on with our life. The first one is a hard heart hinders our ability to hear the voice of God. Matthew, for, uh, Matthew chapter 13, verses 14 and 15. After Jesus had, encountered, uh, had an encounter with the Pharisees, uh, his disciples asked why he spoke to them in parables. And Jesus says, In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have been closed. A hard heart keeps us from hearing and understanding the voice of God. It's like it creates a static uh, kind of connection where we can't make out 
what is being said. A hard heart, number two, a hard heart makes it so we can't understand God's will. Mark chapter 8, verse 17. The disciples were questioning whether they would have enough bread to eat in this passage. And Jesus reminds them about the 5,000 people they had just fed with five loaves and fish. Mark 18, verse 17 says, and, and Jesus, aware of this, of their discussion, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Jesus had this all taken care of, but the disciples uh, put their, uh, couldn't put their trust in him. Uh, and as a result, they couldn't understand what he was up to and what he was doing. And they simply just needed to know that everything would work out just be, and be just fine. But they weren't able to do that because Jesus says their heart was hardened. Number three, a hard heart causes us to justify our position regardless of the counsel of others. Have you ever gone against the, the advice of people in your life? Uh, maybe a mentor, a spiritual leader, a close friend or family member? A person that God may have brought along in order for you to stop doing something or warn you about something, and then when you refuse to listen, this is a sign of a hard heart. Uh, we'll look at a few of these from Exodus. Pharaoh was the epitome of an example of someone with a hard heart. He says in Exodus chapter 8, verses 16 through 19, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand and his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there, was, there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats. I don't know why they were trying to make more just to prove that they could do it too. The magicians tried, but they, so there were gnats on, the, on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Number four, a hardened heart causes us to miss what God is doing. Exodus chapter 7, verses 2 and 3 says, God speaking to Moses, you shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh still will not listen to you. Even though God's signs and wonders were increasing all around, Pharaoh could not see it and was unwilling to budge. When, when we are blind to what God is doing or simply choosing to not acknowledge it, it causes, causes us to become self-centered and think that we are enough. We don't actually need God's help because we can do it just fine. In 1 Thessalonians 5.16 and 18, uh, a great passage of scripture if you want to memorize something short. Uh, Pray continually in all circumstances. Give thanks to God in all circumstances for this is God's will for us. It's an attitude of humility that if 
we fail to see the good things God is doing in our life. It's not because he's not doing them. We just need to pray for a heart that allows us to be humble to see them. Yes, there's probably not the, the biblical, you know, signs and wonders that we see in, in the book of Exodus here. And those aren't the kind of signs and wonders we would like to be seeing in our life when it comes to God working in us and prospering us and, and helping us to live according to his purpose. But the, the things that he does do in our life, we often don't even take time to acknowledge and show that we are grateful, that we are thankful, that we, are, that we acknowledge that it is only because of him that we have these things, have a car, have our health, have the, the things that we prayed for and saw those things come to fruition. That that's essentially what we are, what I'm talking about here. It causes us to miss what God is doing. We don't want to be like that where we don't see it, where we don't want to acknowledge it and give God the glory that he deserves. Number five, it causes us to refuse to do what we know God is telling us to do. Exodus chapter four, verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, when you get back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. How many times in our life do we feel God might be speaking to us about something, but we just ignore it? Or worse, we do the opposite of what he was telling us to do. You remember Jonah, that he ran from God and, and didn't, it didn't turn out very well for him at all. He was stubborn and unyielding to the plans and purpose God had for him. And God used him despite that, but it wasn't pretty. I feel like we often make our lives way harder than they need to be because of this, because we fight so hard against what God is telling us to do. And he's gracious to us and things still work out. But if we just simply surrender and allow God to do what he does, how much easier things could be. Number six, a hard heart causes us to be complacent. Exodus chapter 8, verse 12 through 15. So Moses and Aaron went from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. Have you ever cried about frogs? It just sounded funny when I first read it. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the countrysides and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said he would. Again, in Exodus chapter 9, verse 34, but when Pharaoh saw the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. A hard heart is quick to revert back to its old ways once the pressure is off. Once the tension is gone, once it seems like, okay, I'm in the clear now, are there those areas in your life that it's like God finally got your attention? Are there things in your life that God finally got your attention, uh, usually through some trial or difficult situation? And then when the situation passes, it, it's back to the same old. Every, every one of us has had this happen at different times. It's, it's human nature, but it's also a sign of our hard heart 
We need to not miss the lessons God tries to teach us, whether it's through a financial thing or relationships or, or learning to trust him more. We need not to be, we, we, we can't grow complacent in those things. Number seven and the last one. A hard heart causes us to become numb to the realities and effects of sin in our life. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need to not become so calloused and hardened that the effects of sin just don't even do anything in us in our life this is what happened to the israelites when god allowed them to get to go into captivity it it's this it's a scary place to be because it basically is us saying i don't need god i can be god on my own i can i can set my own rules when we read about idolatry and god's jealousy in the bible that is what it's talking about god's grace for that kind of attitude will only last for so long. A heart of flesh is sensitive to the anguish that sin brings to the heart of God. We need to constantly be aware of, our, of the tendency for our heart to grow calloused and hard. This is why repentance is such a big deal in, in the Christian faith. It's not so much that we just ask for forgiveness— for something. Repentance is the idea of turning away and the Holy Spirit working so that that thing no longer has a hold on our life. It's about this sanctification and renewal, not, not to simply just stop doing something. Proverbs 4.23, another great verse to memorize. It says, keep watch over your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Left unchecked, our heart can become hardened to the point of rendering us useless for the purposes of God in our life. The state of our heart determines the extent that God can use us and work in us and through us. You remember the parable of the, the sower from Matthew chapter 13? It was this farmer who went out to seed and some seed fell on the path but was eaten by the birds. Some fell on the rocks where it was not able to take root. Some fell in the weeds where the seed grew, but it was choked out. And then some fell on good soil where the seed flourished and produced a crop. A couple weeks ago, I finally was able to mow my lawn for the first time after all the rain we'd been having. And I... I did my backyard and it was fine, but the whole time my lawnmower was just, it was like struggling. The, the, the idle just sounded so bad and I'm just like, this isn't, I guess I didn't winterize it right or something. I'm very mechanically, I'm not going to say inept, but pretty close when it comes to these types of things. Thank God for YouTube. And then I finished the backyard and I go to the front yard. I get one pass and it died. I couldn't get it to, to turn. I couldn't get anything to happen and the engine, and I'm just like, what is going on? Uh, I got on YouTube, Googled some stuff, 
Apparently, you're supposed to change the filter once every year or so. I hadn't done it since I got the lawnmower four years ago. And so I went to Home Depot and I got this filter. I, I put it in. It was a $6 part. I put it in the lawnmower and I was literally thinking, okay, I'm just going to have to throw this away and buy a you know, $300 lawnmower today, um, which my wife wouldn't have appreciated. <laughs> but I didn't know what else to do. I'm just thinking it's not working. It must be broke or it must be completely unusable. I put the filter in. One crank and it starts right up, runs like it's brand new. And I'm like, wow, that one little part totally just kept the, the whole lawnmower from, from working uh, or doing anything. And it just made me think about how the, this, the, even though our heart might be significant in, in the sense that it's the seat of our soul and everything that we are as a person, and the sense of this thing that we think we prioritize and try to guard because it's the wellspring of our life. Like it says in Proverbs, the quality and state of our heart is just the same at keeping us or making us completely useless for the purposes that God has for us. Whether or not we are good soil for him to work and to do things through in, in us. Whether we're going to receive that transformational work of the Holy Spirit. Versus if we are a hard heart where, where seed does not grow, where we just repel anything that comes and touches us. That's what we're talking about here. Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Being pure in heart only happens because of the Holy Spirit working in our life. It's through, the, through our humility and that we would decrease in order that he would increase in us. We need the Holy Spirit to teach us and guide us and help us to live into righteousness. It's, it's only through him that we are truly made new and can embrace the promise of Scripture. In Ephesians 1 verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in all the saints? I just want to ask, rhetorically, but genuinely, is there hardness in your heart? Is there hardness in our heart that we just are like not willing to come to terms with and say, God, reveal that to me. Help me in this area. Help me to walk in the new life that you have for me. And to know that the old has gone and that the new has come, that we are a new creation through Jesus Christ, that the promise of Ezekiel is with us today, that we carry his spirit with us. He has taken that heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh that's responsive and able to be life-giving for the kingdom of God. All we have to do is receive it and be open to that work in our life. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.